Gateway, happy Sunday to you. I'm Kyle. I am the pastor here at the Gateway Church. And if this is one of your first times here with us on this online platform, welcome. Uh, We are in the Gospel according to Mark. We're on this slow roll through the Gospel according to Mark to sit ourselves in front of Jesus. We simply want to have a vision for Jesus because apart from having a vision of Jesus, we cannot become what we've never seen. And so that's that's our long station here. But you'll be happy to know that today we're wrapping up the middle section in the gospel according to Mark. This is what some call the journey section or the on the way section. And it, it starts back in chapter eight, but it finishes here in chapter 10, verse 52. And we're gonna pick up our teaching text today in chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, so go ahead and pick up with me there. You can flip or tap your way on over. Um, And as we enter into today's teaching text, there are are two core questions framing our time. First is, what is it to be a follower? And second is, what is it to be followed? And these questions are not unique to our cultural moment or even to our passage. In fact, throughout the Gospels, and more explicitly in the Gospel according to Mark, but throughout all the Gospels, Jesus's core call to his followers is to be an apprentice, or to say it this way, to follow him. That is to be with him, to become like him, to eventually do what he did. And this is the core of what Jesus is after. So why have these two questions frame our time? Well, simply put, these these two questions are meant to be self-reflexive and self-reflective. What I mean is that they're questions that can be turned inward on ourselves so that we can move outward. And for some of us, this is the last thing that we want to do. We don't want to examine ourselves because we don't want to be responsible for what we might see within ourselves. But this is a part of God's gift to us. This is a part of God's gift through us in the world, is that in Christ, we can see ourselves as we actually are, not as some idealized version of ourselves, but that we can be comfortable in our own skin in the presence of Jesus, knowing that it is he who is calling us to be with him and that he is faithful to continue and finish the good work that he started in us. He's actually interested in us being transformed into whole people. But these questions and Uh, more specifically, these questions as they relate to Jesus, that is, what is it to follow Jesus, they create some tension. In fact, we see it right off the bat in our passage. So if you've not yet, go with me to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. and, And this is what we read. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And at first glance, you might notice, or not notice, rather, any tension in this. But what Mark is doing is he's giving us this vivid picture, just the vivid imagery of Jesus leading the way. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He'll say so in a moment. But right here, Jesus is out in front, heading to the city of peace, which is what Jerusalem means. And he's heading there for one of Israel's high holy days, a pilgrimage festival, specifically Passover. And close behind Jesus are his disciples. And this would be the custom of disciples to um, 
be right at their rabbi's heels. There'd be this expression to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which is to be say, you're so close to your rabbi that as as the dust from their sandals flicks up in the air, it covers your cloak. This is where the disciples are. And Mark tells us that they're amazed, but amazed at what? Certainly not the impossibility of the wealthy entering God's kingdom apart from God's grace. That's last week's episode. I mean, Mark mentioned twice that they were amazed. So so that can't be it. So what is it? What are they amazed about in this moment here in verse 32? Well, most likely it's the occasion. Their amazement, or, or we better, we could say their bewilderment, it arises in light of Jesus going up. And he's going up to the place where he would be handed over to death. This bewilderment, it helps us to make sense of really not only their place, but also the, the place of those who follow. That, that is, those who are afraid, which is the crowd. And the next verse that follows It also helps us here. So continue here in verse 32. This is the remainder of it, down to verse 34. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise." Suffice it to say, it's a bit of an ominous tone. (laughs) This is marking the occasion, and this is what Mark uses to help paint the vivid imagery of this scene, is that Jesus is heading to the place of his death. And what's interesting is when we start to think about showing up to ourselves, about examining ourselves, like paying attention to our desires and our longings, especially in light of a text like this, um, it can feel a bit like a kid poking a ant mound. And now if this language feels therapeutic and wonky, just stay with me for a minute. See, uh, at first, the hard exterior of an ant mound uh, allows you to only see ants coming and going. There's only a few that you might see, in fact. But just as soon as that stick jabs into the surface and it breaks the crust, it, it unleashes a torrent of ants. And like then the kid or you are reeling because it's a little chaotic, it's swirly, the ants are in your socks, now they bite. That's kind of what this is like when we consider examining our desires and quote-unquote showing up to ourselves. And some think, well, it's better if we just left the ants alone, like don't even touch the ant mound. And others think, well, let them loose because how are we going to know what's under the surface and attend to it if we don't see what's going on? And I, I think that if we are to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus and what it is to then follow him, we have to simply break the surface. We have to know that we come with our full selves. Whether we're aware of it or not, we have our conscious and unconscious stuff that comes with us to Jesus. But there's tension, isn't there? I love how Ronald Rollheiser, this is one of my favorite quotes. I love how he talks about this tension. He says this, and this is a rather lengthy quote, so stay here with me. There is within us a fundamental dis-ease an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul. 
At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire, what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us. That is our spirituality. St. Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Rollheiser, reflecting on this, says, Spirituality is what we do with our unrest. Mark names the restlessness of the crowds. He calls it fear. He names the restlessness of the disciples. It's a bewildered amazement. So how would you name your restlessness? What is the unrest, the desires of your heart? Where do they bring you? Imagine since you're human that you get what Rollheiser is talking about, this idea that there is a fundamental dis-ease that renders us incapable of ever coming to full peace. We've felt this acutely in this season, have we not? And though we feel that tension, perhaps we've, we've begun to even name it in this season, maybe with the help of a therapist or a friend or a colleague or a pastor, but you may not get that desire can be a gift for godliness as well. See, so often desire is vilified and demonized, but I want to remind us that Jesus isn't afraid of our desires. He wants to rightly order them. And generally speaking, there are uh, two dominant frameworks whereby we seek to order our desires and, and, and really to help interpret and then live out of this. There, there's hedonism and there's religion. Hedonism says, unleash your desires. Like, set yourself free from the captivity to your desires. Unleash them. Let them go wild in the world. And religion says, repress your desires. Hold them externally down. Like, clamp them in. Both hedonism and religion, they fall short in dealing with our desire because they ultimately submit to desire's demands. But there's another way, a way that is the way of Jesus, and it is the redirection of our desires. The the way of Jesus, it frees us from the litany of religion's demands, and it also frees us from the lies of hedonism that we will be free by allowing our desires to run free. See, the way of Jesus allows us to be who we truly are in Christ and to follow him from that place. So with both Mark 10 and this frame in hand, let us just dive deep into the rest of the remainder of our passage here. So John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City, he describes hedonism this way, and I think it's like beautifully poetic. He describes it as the death rattle of a lost vision of godliness. Just say that again. The death rattle of a lost vision of godliness. And what he's getting at when he says a lost vision is exactly what it sounds like. It's when one generation is awakened to life in and with Christ, their hearts are stirred to faith, it compels them to redirect their desires into the way of Jesus, to, to give away their desires sacrificially, essentially to set the needs and goods of others above their own. But if that generation fails to pass along their heart to follow Jesus to the next generation, then what that next generation receives is essentially 
religiosity, and moralism without the substance of union with Jesus. And if that persists onto a third generation, then redirection looks more like restraint for restraint's sake than any kind of freedom in Christ. And remember, freedom in Christ is not liberty to do whatever we wish or want. Freedom in Christ is that we are so free to lay aside our wants for the good of others. But if that isn't there, then it just looks like restraint for restraint's sake, and that is no vision for a life with God or godliness. And in response to this, what you get is hedonism. Because if there's no vision for godliness, do what you want. Do what you please. Throw off restraint. Be set free. This is the gospel of hedonism. Look, look how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 addresses hedonism that was present even in his own day. And, and I think is applicable for us as well. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, and listen to this, the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humanity, like the rest of mankind. The, the Greek word there for desire, this thelema, it carries with it this idea of one's will. So it's now that the body and the mind have a will that have like not just subverted, but overtly control your trajectory in life. In other words, what's promised as freedom from restraint in hedonism has become a new restraint. Now desire is at the helm. And the tragedy of this new restraint is that it's, it's manifesting itself all over, but we're trying to reframe it as freedom, but it's not. I mean, we see it in the studies. Anxiety, depression, suicide are all on this rise. Look at the stark contrast from 2010 to 2011 onward to today, especially among preteens and teenage girls, and it is insane. The data is overwhelming. How is that freedom when people are crippled by fear and depression and are killing themselves? That is not freedom. That's a lie. But we don't just see it there. We see it in an opioid crisis. We, we see it in the selfishness of our day. And I think that we see it in seed form in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, where we read this. And James and John, now this is immediately after Jesus has talked about the trajectory of his ministry for the third time that he is going to Jerusalem and will be handed over. He will be put to death, and praise be to God, he will rise on the third day. This is their response. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Excuse me? <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing, guys? See, not only does this feel ill-timed, Jesus just, he literally predicted for the third time his passion and this demand comes out of the Zebedee brothers to, for Jesus to write them a blank check. But, but not only that, it comes in the wake of multiple calls to humility to the disciples. I mean, think back over the past weeks and months. Jesus has made these broad, general calls to be like a child, to be one who has no status, because the last will become first. 
Then he has specific calls. Think about this past week to the anonymous man who you might know as the rich young ruler. And he says, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. A specific call by giving away what is esteemed in the world because the last will be first. They've missed it all. This is the seedbed of hedonism. See, after all of this, this desire for power and prominence and position, that is what is at the helm of the disciples' hearts. And when met with unbridled desire, just look at how Jesus responds. And he said to them, this is verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this is a cautious response. I kind of want Jesus to flex on these guys, or I would just say rip them a new one. But Jesus, in his caution, is gracious here. And what this does is it holds space for the disciples to redirect their desire and submit to the way of Jesus. Because if there's anybody who ought to know the way of Jesus, it's those who are covered in the dust of their rabbi. That is because they've been so close to him. They've seen the ministry. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the power. They ought to know. And yet, Jesus is still creating space for them to redirect their desires. But not, it's like Jesus' caution doesn't do anything for them. James and John don't hold back. They, they ask for the seats of honor. They ask to be seated at Jesus' right and left hand, and sitting is the position of a king. And there's only two positions of the highest honor for a king, right and left hand, which means that if James and John sit there, it displaces the other disciples, which is contrary to a kingdom built on mutuality and self-giving love. But before we're tempted to like lambast James and John, just jump down to verse 41, because we read this. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And I don't think this is a righteous indignation. I think that's because the Zebedee brothers asked first. This is the same bitterness that perhaps has risen up in you when somebody else advances to a position that you thought you deserved. It's the, how dare they? How could they pass me by? Or perhaps they publicly, in front of all your peers, put themselves forward as a candidate when you know they're not qualified. And then they get the job. It's that feeling. Certainly not righteous indignation that is justified before the Lord. And what's ironic here, church, is that the disciples, they may be physically following Jesus, like they're literally behind him, but, and, and to boot, they may appear to be following him outwardly, but their true ambition for power, that is what's at the helm. It's the seedbed of hedonism. And look where it leads. This is jumping back up to verse 38. We read this. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Stop right there. What is Jesus saying? See, this is imagery from the prophet Jeremiah. The cup is this imagery that draws out the cup of God's wrath, which would be poured out on those who persist in injustice. Ultimately, this is a further pronouncement that Jesus is going ahead to Jerusalem to take the place of those who have resolved in their hearts to be opposed to God. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going 
ahead to take God's wrath into myself. And it's a thing that James and John flippantly say they can take on. Look at verse 39. And they said to Jesus, we are able. Jesus goes on, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. See, the disciples have missed that the last are first and the first are last. So Jesus, I, I imagine with desperation on his lips, he says this in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, and pay attention here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is the invitation yet again to all of the disciples to redirect their desire to be served towards service. Because the economy of the Gentiles is one where you are elevated, where you're lifted up and exalted. And Mark is saying that that needs to be flipped because the economy of heaven is where the king gives his life away as a ransom for many. See, the way of hedonism, it, it traps us in futility. It, it leaves us enslaved to our desires, with our desires at the helm. And it also leaves us to a place where we are dismissing Jesus. So, so if this is the case then, that, that hedonism is faulty at best and futile in reality, then perhaps we should repress or control our desires, really like, like just clench our teeth and get after it. Well, the religious response, which is essentially what I just described, is such a strong impulse, but its strength does not correspond to its truthfulness. It's still broken. Let me just show you here, and we're going to meander a bit in this next passage. Go down with me to verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you might be asking, okay, how do these verses have anything to do with a religious response to desire? Well, first, let's just note that religion responds to desire with external restraint. Do you see that? Religion looks at these internal desires and calculates in their mind that if they restrain them externally, then they'll be dealt with internally. And so these external restraints are meant to bind internal desires with the end goal that you will have an acceptable life. That as your life is presented before God, it will be deemed acceptable. 
But it's not just the religious who appeal to religion, it's in the air we breathe. Because by and large, religion has been rejected, but the spirit of religion, it's everywhere. I mean, Fleming Rutledge, the great preacher, says this, ideas about human self-creation are deeply religious notions. They are born out of illusion, wishful thinking, and a failure to look at radical evil straight in the face. Human potential, which often takes the guise of spirituality, has itself become the object of worship. So, we disciple our bodies. We, excuse me, we discipline our bodies. We discipline our minds. We discipline our schedules in order to activate potential. We externally restrain to bind these internal desires. And we do so in order to produce like an acceptable, or, or in the language of our day, an actualized self. And when Jesus comes to Jericho, he, he comes to a city marked by restraint, a city marked deeply by religiosity. Because Jericho is often one of the last cities that, that people would go through on their pilgrimage to one of these high holy days, one of the feasts and festivals. So they would go through Jericho and then literally go up from about 2,200 feet below sea level up to the Temple Mount, which is about 1,200 feet above sea level. So they would take this steep one day's journey up into Jerusalem singing these songs of ascent. These would be the songs on the lips of pilgrims that are singing about God's deliverance amidst distress, songs about God's holiness, about his mercy, songs about affliction, about how God attends to those who are afflicted. And in this space where people are singing songs aloud to one another as they go up to worship God and to celebrate that God passed over them when the blood of the Lamb covered their doorpost, lies a man begging and blind. And this man, upon hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is near, he cries out for mercy, a, a cry that is akin to the cries for mercy that a people are singing about. But listen to the response of the pilgrims who hear his cry for mercy. Rebuke and silence. And they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. See, the irony of the religious spirit, whether it is emboldened religiosity or spirituality, the irony of the religious spirit is that though its intent is to repress personal desires through external means, it often bleeds into community life because it holds those external desires to suppress and repress internal desire, like over people. Because at the core of the religious spirit is fear, and more specifically, fear of losing control. And so right here, this is this prime example. According to the crowds, Bartimaeus does not measure up. He's a blind beggar. He's one who ought not be touched. He's unclean. He's all, all of the things that they are not as they are preparing themselves to go up to the city of the great king, to go to Jerusalem. He's a nuisance to Jesus. He quite simply doesn't fit the mold. But, but look at Jesus' response in verse 49. And Jesus stopped. Now that's, that's huge. This man cries for mercy. And Jesus stops. 
I don't know which one of you watching right now needs to hear that when you cry out for mercy that God hears you and stops and has inclined his ear to you. So do not stop crying out. Just like Bartimaeus, do not stop. Even if the people who call themselves religious or faithful or Christian rebuke you for your cries for mercy, do not stop because God has stopped and he is listening. So Jesus stopped. And then, then hear this. He said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this should be jumping off the screen right now because this is the same question that Jesus asked James and John back in verse 36. But note the contrast. Finishing up in verse 51. And and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, one Jesus, Jesus is not this man's rabbi, and yet he calls him rabbi. So, so is he trying to do the same thing that the rich young ruler was doing in terms of flattery and knowing the cultural economy? No, he's blind and he's a beggar. So he's saying this, he's esteeming Jesus, rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and check this out, and followed him on the way. See, some of you are crying out for mercy. And you need to hear, yes, that Jesus has stopped. But you also need to hear that he has said, call her, call him. And he's asking you, what do you want me to do? Are you, do you know? what he would say? Because in one sense, if you're calling out for mercy to Jesus, the son of David, you know who he is. Then in some sense, you could say you're following him. But what do you do there? See, the way of Jesus, it's about redirecting our desires and passions for the good of others. See, we are not the end goal of our desires. And desires are not bad. Desires rightly ordered are a beautiful thing. Where did we get our desires? And the story that we tell ourselves, the story that we believe is the truest true, the story that we receive from Jesus is that desires were a gift to humanity from God so that we might model his love in the world. See, Jesus gives this man here full permission to do anything that he wants. He says, essentially, go on your own way. Go about your business. And instead, he turns to be with Jesus. He turns to be with Jesus and go toward Jerusalem. And there's there's so much happening here. So here's just three quick observations. First, note that this man, Bartimaeus, that the recovery of his sight is in contrast to the dull vision of the disciples. See, they're, they're contending for power and prestige and position, and he wants to be with Jesus. They're more concerned about being on Jesus' left and right, and he just wants to be in Jesus' presence. He can truly see, and the disciples can see less and less and less. Second, notice Bartimaeus' willingness to enter into the way of Jesus by faith. See, 
When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, that awokened the cry of his heart. See, Nazareth, if you remember, is up in the northern parts of Israel. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea at the southern parts of of Jerusalem, excuse me, of Israel. It's a day's journey from Jerusalem. And Jesus is a common name. But Jesus of Nazareth? Certainly the stories have gone ahead. Certainly this man has thought about what if he encountered Jesus? What would he do? And it is by faith, by trust, by allegiance that he comes not only to see, but then to remain with Jesus. Lastly, Bartimaeus abandons his only possession, his cloak. Think about the rich young ruler, the anonymous man, who in hearing Jesus' call to go and sell all of his possession and give it to the poor because that's where true riches would be, he went away grieved in his spirit. This man, the only possession he would have to collect alms given to him was his cloak, and even that he throws off to be with Jesus. Because in the kingdom of God, the last will be first. He not only sees physically, he sees reality as it truly is, that life with Jesus is where true living is to be had. He sees that to follow Jesus, that is his chief desire. So yes, he wanted to see, but he wanted to see so he could follow. See, the redirection of our desires is for the good of others in the way of Jesus. And and Believe it or not, this doesn't happen magically or fancifully or accidentally. I mean, we have to have a great measure of intention in this area. But let's, before I come to that point, let me just remind us as we come to a close here that Jesus is not afraid of your desires. See, I don't know what all of your desires are. To be honest, I don't know what all my desires are. (laughs) When they come and I feel them intensely, then I know what they are. From past patterns of experience, I'm aware of some of them, but our desires shift in the context that we are. They evolve as we do as humans. So our desires are like this malleable thing that are being formed and reformed and trained. Jesus is not afraid of any of them. He actually wants to partner with you and with me in the midst of our desires to transform them so that they might be leveraged for the good of others, which is not the absence of our good. So Jesus wants to help us by the power of his personal presence, by the very spirit of the living God to redirect our desires for the good of others. But wouldn't you know it? Like the first thing that we say in the morning is not, Today, my desires are second. That's just not our operating framework. See, if everything, if everything or anything is of of significance in our life, it's generally our self-interest. And if anything is opposed to that, we stand opposed to that. That's the world of hedonism. And suddenly we can become aware of that, but then we want to push that deep down and try and control that reality so we might have the desired outcomes, but that's religion. Jesus wants to set us free from both. You see, there is an assault going on by the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our souls, the devil. 
after our hearts. It's an assault on our hearts to turn our desires inward, to to elevate our desires to the supreme place in our life, whether it's through religiosity or hedonism. And so we must cultivate a discerning and resistant spirit. There are times where we are more susceptible to this, And I remember the first time that I I heard this, it kind of, I thought it was silly, but as I've thought about it and seen it recently, I thought, this is so true. It's this thing called behalt. See, there's mornings, there's moments when we are more susceptible to, to the, like, onslaught of our desires and their inward turn. It's moments where we're bored, where we're hungry, where we're angry, where we're lonely, and where we're tired. And when you think about this, uh, this is the whole pandemic. This is racial unrest. This is the election coming up. This is this moment. I can't think of any other moment in my lived experience when I am more prone to give way to the whims of my desires. And this is where This is where cultivating a discerning and resilient and resistant spirit is so important. And so let me just give you, give us these words of Jesus. This is from John 16, 33. Jesus says this, in this world, you will have trouble. There will be a pandemic. You will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I know I'm taking that verse out of its context, out of the prayer, out of the high priestly prayer, the moment where Jesus has like had dinner with his disciples. I know it. I know it. This is not good exegetical stuff. Bear with me. Jesus has overcome the world. The world is assaulting us, trying to manipulate our desires so that we might be taken captive by them. But in Christ Jesus, we are a new creation which means that we are no longer captive to sin, Satan, the flesh, or the world. We can actually be so free, we can lay aside our desires for the good of others. And so a while back, I I had this little thing that I said in a sermon because it is true in my life and it sounds silly, but saying it aloud has so much power and it is this, get behind me, Satan. See, there are moments from past patterns of sin in my life where I have images come to my mind that I'm like, whoa, where in the world did that come from? And they come out of nowhere. And literally, almost like a mantra or like a reflex that started to be habituated in my flesh is, I'm a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. This body is not my own. I was bought with a price. Jesus is my king. Get behind me, Satan. We will either be habituated by our desires, which is to say controlled by our desires, by the will of our desires, by the body and the mind, or we will by the power of the Spirit, out of our identity, redirect our desires for the good of others. This is such a beautiful moment, church, for us to live out of our identity in Christ as those who have an overcoming spirit. See, if we are a follower of Jesus, we're one who has an overcoming spirit because Jesus has an overcoming spirit. And as we live in the world and as we love our friends and our family, as we 
make blunders of our relationships, and as Jesus turns ashes into spaces of beauty, as he turns graves into gardens, we can say that we are not captive to our desires, but Christ Jesus, by the power of his Spirit, is transforming our desires for the good of others. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would shape us through the power of your word and your living spirit, that you would help us to attend to who we're becoming, to to what we're really following. Are we following our desires or are we following you, Jesus? Because if we claim to have allegiance, then let us be like Bartimaeus, who by faith follows after you. So Jesus, would you increase our faith? Would you give us the gift of faith in this season so that when we are bored, hungry, or hurting, when we are bored or hungry or angry or lonely or tired, that we would know that we have an overcoming spirit in your name. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Minister to us as we respond to your word and worship through song and community. Amen. Amen.